You're listening to a podcast from York City Church. If you like what you hear and you'd like to find out more, please visit our website at www.yorkcitychurch.org.uk. Well, for those who, who came in after we, we, we started, um, lovely to see you here today. Uh, my name is Peter, uh, and it's been great to worship with you so far. Thanks, Paul and Jane, for leading us in that um, wonderful uh, song of, of leaning on the mercies of Jesus. And we're going to be uh, thinking about those things today and, and, and looking at a particular passage in Scripture. Um, if, if you're not generally with us here at City Church, uh, you may not know that for most of the year, we generally like to focus on a, a specific series or a, or a book of the Bible, uh, and we may go through it over a number of weeks. Um, but for other bits of the year, um, I guess what you might call ordinary time, um, we use something called the lectionary, which is essentially a, a year-long, or in fact a three-yearly cycle of Bible readings. And with the lectionary, you get um, generally three, four, even five passages uh, on any given Sunday. And uh, in a sermon, you can try and touch on all of them and bring them all together uh, and see how they relate to one another. Or it's perfectly uh, legitimate just to focus on one single one. And that's what we're going to be doing today. So in our lectionary today, uh, we are taken to the start of chapter three from the book of Colossians, which is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a city in modern-day Turkey called Colossae, um, and probably around the middle of the first century AD. We're going to be focusing today on the type of life which typifies those who have died and been raised with Jesus. The type of life that typifies those who are now on a totally transformed, upside-down and counterintuitive path since meeting Jesus. We're going to be focusing on the type of life that typifies those who instead instead of being on a journey from death, life through to death, are actually now on a journey from death to life. And for some of you, this will be, I guess, maybe a fairly familiar call to you to live the type of life that you've come to know as the Christian life. And for some of you, this might be a description of an alien or unfamiliar thing. Maybe you wouldn't call yourself a Christian or identify with the Christian faith. But I guess my encouragement for all of us is pretty much the same, really, to be open to a sense of pull in our hearts to the words of Scripture that we will hear, and grappling, I guess, with the questions, is, is the life that we hear described in this passage, is it attractive? Is it intriguing? Does it make you want to find out more? Well, let's see as we head on through. With the help of the wonderful David Suchet, we're going to read the first section of chapter 3 in the book of Colossians. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. 
So the Apostle Paul wants us to understand that there has been a fundamental shift in the nature of a person when they become a Christian. A radical change has happened that can't be, it can't be reduced to, I guess, a life option choice. Becoming a Christian is not the religious version of moving city or changing job or adopting a new diet. A life option is the wrong way of thinking about becoming a Christian. It's not swapping one element of life for another element of life. It's actually swapping one type of life for a a totally different type of life. And using an analogy from the writer Gren Shrivener, it's actually a transformation from life as tragedy to life as comedy. Let's unpack that idea. Life as tragedy and life as comedy. One way of seeing human life is like this. It's a journey from death, or I guess non-existence before you're born, to life and then back to death. It's like an arc peaking in the middle and then on an ever-ascending downwards trajectory. Essentially, it's a tragedy. Despite the fleeting high points, maybe the climaxes of the middle period of life, your achievements or your milestones or some moments of real happiness or, or, or reaching some of your goals, despite those things, the end point is, the, is inevitable. It's the low point of death. But the Christian story narrates a different life course from life to death and then life again. In fact, resurrection life, an everlasting ascending upwards trajectory. So in that sense, Christian life is a glorious, wonderful comedy. It's something that, you know, despite perhaps middle period struggle, maybe difficulty, maybe for you real pain, real hardship, real tragedy and heartache, It's on an inevitable trend towards a joyous end. It's on an inevitable trend towards fulfillment, towards fullness, towards life. And the language used in Colossians for all of this is dying with Christ and being raised with Christ. And Paul is insistent that the circumstances of becoming a Christian, it's it's so very revolutionary, it's so very massive and monumental that actually the events that mark the story of Jesus, and if you know anything about the life course of Jesus, the events which mark that now mark us. We're so identified with him. We find we've got a flipped central story of who we are. We're no longer death, life, death people. We are life, death, life people. And that's why we sing. That's why we devote at least half our meetings and and Christians all over the world and throughout the centuries, you won't find a, a single community that doesn't sing, that doesn't celebrate, that doesn't rejoice. Rejoicing and singing and celebrating have been wired into Christian living and Christian community since the start of the church because the gospel is fundamentally a good news announcement. It's a hopeful and it's a joyful and it's an optimistic explanation of the world that we see around us and what's going on. But it takes the innate and and perhaps depressing sense that we might have to start with of life of as tragic and disappointing and decaying and it's temporary and it never seems to go the way we want. It turns it on its head. It turns, well, you live and then you die into come die and then you live. 
die to yourself and then become alive to God. Those who find their life will lose it, but those who lose their life for Jesus' sake will find it. Since then, Paul says, we have died with Christ. We set our minds on things which are above, not on things that are on earth. Well, what does that then mean? Given all I've said about this life, death, life trajectory a Christian finds themselves on, what does it mean to set your mind on the things that are above? Well, the context of the book of Colossians, and this is a one-off sermon on the book, if we were going through it across a number of weeks, we'd be able to unpack this more. But very briefly, the, the context of the book, that there was a huge lie going around the city of Colossae about how you find the way to God. It's variously called the, the philosophy, and, and scholars talk a little bit about what that philosophy might have been, but essentially a set of behaviours and practices and traditions which, when learnt and followed properly, are the entry point or route into a life in God. So Paul describes this in various ways. In fact, to be honest, Paul attacks this in various different ways in Colossians. He calls it empty philosophy. He calls it asceticism, essentially denying yourself stuff to make you more spiritual. He talks about festivals and new moons, Angel worship, they had a particular thing about angel worship in Colossians. Human precepts and teachings, don't touch, don't handle, don't eat. And behaviours and practices that bring you closer to the divine. And you know, behaviours and practices differ across millennia and centuries, but I think we still find it a very attractive idea that entry into things that are above or spiritual things the meaning of life, the spiritual dimension of reality. We find it quite attractive that that can be achieved through earthly technique and mastery of religious or spiritual practices. I think the world finds it quite attractive, the idea that God's love and God himself is going to be accessed through us getting something right, through us getting it right, cracking it, finding the key, finding the clue, but for the Christian, faith is not technique. It's the opposite of technique. It's a gift from Christ. It's actually, it's the gift of Christ. It's the Father's gift from above his Son. It's a given reality that comes from outside of ourselves. Look within and, and actually you won't find it. It's a given reality from outside. It's not self-generated. The object of our faith is Christ. So, Paul says... Seek the things which are above. Why? Because that's where Christ is. In the story of the cosmos that the Bible unpacks from AD 33 until at least July 2021 and probably thereafter for, for the foreseeable future, he is the ascended Christ. He is the exalted Christ. He sits at the right hand of God. The things that are above, therefore, are the things of Jesus. What, what does that phrase mean, the things that are above? The things of Jesus the things of Christ. And we Christians as life, death, life people are in him who is above. And it's not that the upper realm, heaven, the place where God inhabits, it's not that that is good and true and this earthly material realm, the stuff of rain and pavements and food and football, etc., etc. it's not that those things are bad and evil. 
Our lives are in Christ. He's currently exalted to the right hand of God. So that's where our minds should ascend to. But one day he'll be revealed. He will appear in glory, it says. So, so our minds should be set up there. But we shouldn't imagine that down here doesn't matter. In fact, we could put it like this. Christians are called to heavenly participation, not to escape the earth, but for the sake of the earth. For the sake of this good world that God made, that he doesn't hate or despise. He made it. He loves it. He created it. For the sake of the world, we are called to heavenly participation. We are called to where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Heaven is where Christ is. Our minds, thoughts, our interior life must rise heavenward. Our obsession and focus must be the worship of him who is exalted. And earthly distractions like false, pious, image, conscious, religious practices, you know, improve yourself or try harder, impress God, win his favour, those things should and indeed must fade away. They must be replaced by beautiful, captivated beholding of him. But, but yet we remain rooted here on earth because our eventual hope is not to go there but for that to come here. For the sake of the earth and the fixing and healing of all that is created and beautiful and wonderful, in this present age we seek that which is above where Christ is. It's, in, it's interesting and I, I, I think it's encouraging. It's interesting how honest Paul is in describing this life we have in Christ, in describing this comedy that we find ourselves a part of. He describes it as very real and very true, but also as hidden. Our life is now hidden with Christ in God. The Greek word that is used is crypto, cryptic. Amazing, yet perplexing. Wonderful, yet mystifying. Now, but not yet. It's there all right, but it's, it's not always accessible by sight. In fact, if you want to get to it, you have to take the scary leap of accessing it by faith. And I think this actually should encourage us. Do you realise that there is a hidden reality of your unity with Christ if you know Jesus, if you've given your life to him, there is a hidden reality of your bound upness with Christ, which actually is not available to your eyes. So, so stop finding it so disappointing when you don't see it. It's not obvious. It's not apparent. It's not visible. But, but nonetheless, it's categorically true, as surely as the fact is that Jesus is alive and reigning with the Father. We can't see him seated at the right hand of God. You can't walk up out that door and look at the sky and see the exalted Christ at the right hand of God. But it's as true as true can be. Because it's not an eye thing, it's a faith thing. It's an eye of the heart thing. I wonder if you're ever discouraged with the, the progress of life, maybe the progress of faith with your maturity in Jesus, you know, your ability to grow in faith. Look, the work of God in you is maybe not always apparent, obvious, or visible, but right now, in this very place, on this rainy Sunday morning in July, what is true of Jesus is true of you. Jesus has died and been raised 
never more to die and is now hidden in heaven and will one day be revealed. You have died and been raised, never more to die. Your life is hidden in him and will one day be revealed. And I wonder if you're ever discouraged with the progress of our church life, our maturity in Jesus, our growth in faith, in action, in number. Where has she gone or where has he gone since the pandemic? Why doesn't, why do they ever turn up to small group? Why didn't we have more at the prayer meeting? This passage speaks to our corporate life together. The work of God in us is not always obvious, apparent, visible. But what is true of Jesus is true of his church. He has died and been raised, but is now hidden in heaven and will one day be revealed. And we, York City Church, have died and been raised. Literally, we've had the pool here on so many occasions when people have gone into the water and come up out of it. And we're hidden in heaven with Christ and will one day be revealed. Let's turn to the rest of our text, which we're going to make our way through quicker than we have this first section because this really unpacks I guess the basis the theology the, the the stuff underlying what is to come because after this theology of who Christians are in Christ Paul then turns to the type of behavior that flows from all of this In fact, if you are going to listen to this sermon afterwards and you start at the 17th minute and then listen to the first section of the sermon, you will basically have the opposite of the gospel. (laughs) Because if you don't have the first section of this sermon, what I'm about to say not only won't make any sense, it will be the opposite of what is true. Because it will make it sound like the behaviours come first. And it will make it sound like what you do on your actions are the primary start. But we've started with what is already fundamentally true and what we're about to unpack will flow out of that. Paul presents us with a, actually a quite neat, and I'm quite a maths guy, so quite a neat and symmetrical, I love this stuff. It's a list of vices and virtues. It would have been a very familiar device used in Greek rhetoric. It would have been familiar to his readers. Don't forget that the words we read on the page didn't have the headings in bold, didn't have the numbers, didn't actually have many of the punctuation that that we see, and actually would have been blocks of text. So actually reading it, you would have needed things to hang off. Oh, he says it five times. Oh, he says it five times there. Okay, I get those. It meant to make the connections. So these devices are all over Scripture and, and, and they're here. I guess it's the equivalent of like a, a listicle or a top 10 or something like that nowadays that we might be familiar with. This was a familiar thing. A list of 10 vices, one, five relating to behavior, five relating to speech, and then a list of 10 virtues, five relating to character and five relating to action. And in the first section, three times we're told to take them off, <laughs> take off the vices. And in the second section, three times we're told to put on, put on, is, I guess, the clothing metaphor being used. So let's listen to the list of vices. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. 
You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. But now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. So there are things that we are now exhorted and encouraged to take off, rid ourselves of or put to death in this new Christian reality. Sexual behaviour which tears apart rather than pulls together. Greed which elevates something to the status of an idol, which something takes the place of God in your heart. Anger and rage bringing violence and distress into the world. Malice, deliberately intending harm on others. Slander and obscenity, where the violence, I guess, is verbal. Paul says, you used to walk in these ways. But now you've taken off your old self and you put on the new self. So stop. And the implication is threefold. First, these vices, even though they're the hallmarks of the old way of life, they're not foreign or irrelevant in the new way of life. I guess to say that they're possible. They happen in the life of the Christian. The vices can seem, I guess, a little bit comical, can't they? It's a bit anachronistic. The picture in our head when we read about anger or malice or slander can kind of be an Al Pacino, Godfather-type character. But look, don't be fooled. There are middle-class, polite versions of these things available, readily available. They're just as deadly, just as deadly. Secondly, these vices are done by individuals, but they harm groups. Specifically, in this context, they harm the church because they're vices of division, of tearing apart and shattering. Paul isn't against them because he has some kind of sort of buttoned-up ethic. He's against them because they pull apart and tear apart a community that is meant to be one in Christ. And we know this because he ends this section talking about the glorious unity that we have in Christ. And it's, it's corporate. It's a unity of the church. And it's potentially one of the most subversive passages in the whole of the New Testament because it cuts against the social class and the social ethic that people would have just... It's been like water. It's you swim in it. You can't really question it. It cuts against the division between Gentile and Jew, where for centuries they had been two categories of people which who would have not mixed and would have been apart and divided. It talks about barbarians and Scythians. Essentially, there it's talking about that those on the very edge of the world. If if. If for, for Jews, Gentiles would have been anathema in that sense, for Romans, Scythians and barbarians would have been the same. There's clues slightly in the name. The barbarians on the edge who we haven't managed to tame yet. The Pax Romana does not cover them yet. The peace that we've established across most of the world doesn't extend to those northerly and westerly tribes of unruly barbarians. And then slaves and free possibly the most subversive of all, unquestioned. 
that you could have a whole class of people who were actually not even considered to be people, who weren't personas. They weren't given the status of humans, often weren't given names. That's why in the book of Romans you will find Tertius and Cortus. They didn't have the status to have a name. They were just third and fourth. They are now brought in to the community of God. And they are part of who the church is, united with Christ. And somehow these vices are the things that are going to pull against that. And that new social framework of inclusion is going to be pulled apart by the types of vices that we have discussed. Do you see why these are not just a list of conservative ethics? This is a list of things which cut against what God is trying to do in the church. And thirdly, we're going to have to come to terms with the fact that taking off these vices will be painful. I don't know how often you have put something to death. But it's not really a relaxing Sunday afternoon activity, is it? There will be pain and struggle. Remember, that's the pattern. Death, then life. Losing in order to find. Dying in order that you might live. Let's listen now to the list of virtues. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let's just compare these vices and these virtues for a moment. Note the very subtle colours I've used on the slide. Let's just take a moment. Let's just look at this. Hopefully it's large enough to read. I think comparing these lists could, could be the makings of a small group discussion. <laughs> um, the makings of a time of meditation, perhaps, or study, or, or even a retreat topic. And I think if we were to spend significant time on this, which, which we don't have the time to do this morning, I think the kind of questions I'd be asking, and I'm sure you'd have your own, the kind of questions I'd be asking would be these. Truly... Which list does our community most closely resemble? When are the times that our community really has resembled that green list? And when are the times it has, in honesty, resembled the red? What vices do we struggle with the most? What virtues do we need to nurture and to grow the most in us? What needs to die in our lives for the vices also to die? The vices may be related to something that has to go. What needs to be enlivened or revived in our community for more of the virtues to live? Which vice do you find most distasteful? You're annoyed it's in the list. 
and you're annoyed I've talked about it this morning. That might be the one you need to work on the most. Which virtue do you think most unattractive? Maybe you think it's soft or feeble. Maybe it's unobtainable. And if so, have you really understood it right? And the final one, thinking broader than us as a community, but thinking outwards. If as Christians we took these virtues out into the world, what would be the impact? What would be the impact on racial justice? What would be the impact on the climate crisis? What would be the impact on poverty and the cost of living? I think perhaps the most encouraging thing to meditate on as we draw near the end is that we don't actually just have to imagine what these virtues look like. It's good to imagine. Turning your imagination on is good. But but we we actually have a living and breathing example to look to. (laughs) Because these virtues might as well be a description of the man Jesus who we find ourselves now rooted and grounded in, hidden with Jesus in God. Let's go through them. They're a description of the one who looked upon the worried and harried crowds and had compassion on them. They are a description of the one who healed the woman bleeding for 12 years and with a word of kindness for the only time in the gospel called her daughter. They're a description of the one who didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped or laid hold of, he humbled himself, taking the form of man and being found in that form, humbled himself further to the point of death on the cross. These virtues are a description of the one who says, come to me, for I am gentle and lowly at heart. Their description of the one of patience, of the one who patiently taught and nurtured his frustrating and confused followers. They're a description of the one who bore with their lack of faith and even their disloyalty. They're a description of the one who in his hour of agony at the cross cried, Father forgive them. They're a description of the one who having loved his own who were in the world, Love them even to the end. Their description, the one who's the prince of peace and the one who thanked God continually. Come on in, kids. And so the people of God can seek the things which are above. We can put off our vices and put on our virtues by doing one thing and doing it alone and doing it well and doing it with your might year after year and decade after decade. You can look to Jesus and when you do so the community of God looks truly beautiful we finish with a scripture let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts since as members of one body you were called to peace and be thankful let the message of Christ dwell among you richly 
as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So let's come to the communion table now. This message of Jesus to us and who we are in him can dwell in us richly as we take the bread and the wine. This message of who we are to be as a body of believers together can help us sing psalms and hymns and songs to Jesus with gratitude for what he's done. And this message of how to live, how a type of life flows out from who we are in Jesus, that can help us go into the world doing everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's come to the table, let's share this meal together, and let's go out in his name. Amen.